Well, like Matt, I've been gone for the last couple of weeks, and um, our family has been up in North Carolina. Our parents, or my parents, have a vacation home up there in the mountains on a lake, and it's this idyllic, amazing, beautiful place that I've had the privilege of going pretty much for most of my life, that Beth and I have been going all of our married lives, that our kids have literally been going since they were in utero. We had three pregnant summers representing each one of our three kids, and we have never missed a year. It's like we gather up the majority of our vacation time and we say, all right, we're going to take it all for the most part, and we're going to spend it there. And that's just what we've done. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we got a little bit paranoid about that and thought to ourselves, you know, do the kids feel like they're missing out on something because we always go to the same place? And so we came to them both of the last two years and said, um, you know, we're planning to go to North Carolina again. Is that good with you? I mean, are you excited about that? Does that jazz you up? Should we partner it with something else? Should we try to do something else? What do you guys think? You know, secretly, we've got our fingers crossed going, oh, I hope they say they want to go back. And, of course, they said they want to go back. I mean, and with enthusiasm, it's like, no way. How could you ever imagine doing something else? And we want to do this and want to do that. An old-fashioned ice cream store. And my son is the king backflipper off a rope swing in North Carolina for the record. He is like the man. Skiing, tubing, all the cool stuff that we get to do up there. And so we were really excited to be able to go back. You know, we feel like the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We know that, but we also feel like God has taken two acres in North Carolina and he has said, listen, it's mine, but I'm going to let you use it. And we use it. And it is for us a place of beauty and of rest and of restoration and so forth. But this year was a little different. And, uh, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Wasn't quite the same. And the reason that it wasn't quite the same this year is that it just seems to me at least, and I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but I don't think so, that there are a ton of people in this church, and not even just in the church, but, but also on my staff that are suffering in really profound ways. And you can't like, you know, put that in a box and set it in the corner and go, well, I'm going to be back in three weeks and then I'll look at that again. It doesn't work that way. And so we got in the car and our bodies went up there, but our hearts were here and very much connected to our emails and our cell phones and and all of those things for good reason. It's been a tough year. On the one hand, this has been probably, no, not even probably, it has definitely been the most productive ministry year, at least that I've seen at this church. And for that, I am so incredibly thankful. On the other hand, looking just at our staff for a second, this has been personally the most traumatic year by in spades, I mean on steroids, that we've ever experienced. It started out for us back in January when one of our staff members lost her husband. He was 52 years old. They have two boys, ages eight and six. And to say that it was sudden and unexpected is to make a massive understatement. It's not a little thing. That same week, I think it was, if I got my timing right, I learned that Dave Ingram, who is our associate pastor here at this church, he's the dean of students and Bible teacher also across the school, you would be hard-pressed to find a more beloved man in this church or in our school than that man had kidney cancer. Kidney cancer is not a friendly thing. No cancer is. Like, I mean, if you had the list of all the different kinds of cancer and somebody came to you and said, okay, look, here's the deal, you're going to get cancer, therefore... Pick which one you want, all right? It's probably not the last one you would choose, but it sure is not the first one you would choose either. So that was the bad news. Now, the good news is that it was in his kidney and looked to be completely contained, and the scans are clear, and he's looking good and all that stuff, and he has a great doctor, and they did this great surgery, and they said it was encapsulated, and they got the whole dadgum thing out. 
He's healing up. We're doing good. Has a scan. He's all clear. He's all free until he gets this pain in his jaw and his chin, which then kind of emanates around the side of his jaw. And then it starts up here at the base of his skull and it travels down into his shoulders. Dave is one of the toughest human beings I have ever met. I'm not kidding. And that's surprising because he's such a mild-mannered guy. This guy's tough as nails. A lot of pain. He's taking like six Advil every four hours just to kind of cope with it. And they've tried morphine, and I mean, it's, it's a lot of pain. So he goes to the doctor. Bottom line, cancer's back. It's in his jaw. It's in the vertebrae in his neck. Lungs, not a little thing. Go back to April of this year, Ryan Brasington, our worship leader and his amazing wife, uh, celebrated the birth of their second little boy, and his name is Jethro Asher, and we've all come to know him as Jet. And the reason we've all come to know him as Jet is because pretty much all of us have been praying for this kid ever since he was born. When he came out, it was pretty evident that he didn't breathe normally, and what The bottom line on that is, is that he had a congenital virus that affected the development of his lungs and of his diaphragm and so forth. And so he spent the first three months of his life undergoing all kinds of different tests and doctors talking about all kinds of maybe it's this and maybe it's that and all kinds of waiting to figure out if it's this or if it's that. And he's in the NICU for the first three months of his life. In fact, we celebrated and it was so wonderful his release while we were gone in North Carolina. But so many of you guys who were there literally lining the Brasington Street, holding up signs and balloons and the whole deal, right? I'm getting pictures of it while I'm at this pizza restaurant in Hiawassee, Georgia. So cool. But it's not over. And Ryan was wise in his his letter that he sent home via email to you guys. He said, look, you know, This battle has not ended. Phase one is done, and he's home, and it's wonderful, and that's glorious, but there are still tests that they're waiting results for. There's still a lot of development that this little guy needs. A lot going on. So while we're gone, I get an email from one of our other staff members. My wife is pregnant. And I'm not an overly emotional person. I'm getting worse, I admit, as I get older. But I still don't cry at United Way commercials, and I'm just, I'm not, you know, I'm Dutch, which means I'm disconnected from my emotions, generally speaking. That email reduced me to tears. And I said, Lord, finally, a message of life. Two days later, she miscarried. And I thought, you know, really? What is up? With this, what's going on? So while we're up there, our routine, Beth and my routine, is we get up probably about three hours before the rest of our kids. Actually, we get up about three hours before our two youngest kids and nine hours before our oldest child. (laughs) And we're good with that, and she's good with that, so it works. But we get up, we do our devotions, we have breakfast, we strap on the walking shoes, And we go for a walk through the neighborhood. It's like a four-mile walk up and down hills, sucking wind, you know, all that stuff. And what we do as we walk is we pray. It looks to everybody else like we're having a little conversation, and I guess we are, but we're having a conversation with the Lord. And we pray for our staff. We pray for you. 
pray for our kids and all kinds of other things. And so we walk and pray and, you know, I pray and she prays and I pray. And at some point, and it's not too far into the walk usually, she starts to cry as we're walking, which is terrifically awkward for me. Because we're not the only people on the street, okay? So like I'm walking, and it's obvious that we're married and together, and I'm walking with this woman who's very attractive and just, I mean, just has kindness, like in her persona. And she's got the red nose and the tears and occasionally a little snot, you know, and it's like, oh, man. And so we're walking down the street praying, and I know why she's crying, and she knows why she's crying, but these people walking the dog are looking at me like I am a real jerk, you know? (laughs) They're like, I don't know what you've done to this woman, but you are a bad man. I'm like, (laughs) and there's no explaining it. Somewhere on one of those walks, one of the days, uh, she made a comment that I want to share with you. She said, you know, I feel like um, God is pruning us as a church. And I want you to think about that word, pruning. That's the key word. She didn't say, I feel like God is punishing us. That's anti-gospel. That's anti-Jesus. That's anti-the cross. God poured out his punishment on Christ for all those who come to him and have faith in him and receive the benefits of his sufferings and death, of his burial and resurrection. God does not punish his people. She didn't say, you know, I feel like God is cursing us, and that's what this is. We're bearing the curse of God. No, no, wait a minute. Again, go to the New Testament, and what do we see? That Christ bore our curse on the cross. He does not curse us. You say, okay, he's pouring out his wrath and his judgment. No, 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 again, Jesus, that, that's where that happened. But he does prune us. And that thought just kind of cycled around in my heart and mind. He's pruning us, he's pruning us, he's pruning us. And it gives a lot of context to... All of these things that are going on, not just on our staff, but in your life and my life, these difficulties that we experience, it says something about them. In fact, as I hope you'll see today, it redeems them. It says that they are not meaningless, that they are not purposeless, that they are not random, and that they don't go unjustified. So I thought it was interesting that she said it pruning, and I started thinking about that. And then one of the things I do to kind of stay away for an extra couple of days is I start working on my sermon for, you know, the next Sunday after we get back before we leave. And what was funny is that I came to the passage of Scripture, and I hadn't looked at it in a couple of weeks, and I realized, oh, wow, you know, this series of messages that we started in January has led us to the pruning passage today. So in the Lord's timing, we pick up our study this morning in John chapter 15, and here's what Jesus is going to say to us. He's going to take an agricultural analogy, and he's going to use that to tell us who he is, who we are, who the Father is, and what the goal for us is. The Son and the Father have a goal for you. They have a goal for me, and do you know what the goal is? It is to bear fruit. In fact, it is to maximize the production of fruit in our lives. But here's what else he's going to say, and he's going to say it right in the beginning. That requires pruning. It just does. 
Jesus says this, John 15, beginning of verse 1, he says, I am the, and then he says, true vine. So right out of the gate in the agricultural analogy, who's Jesus? He's the vine, right? But he's not just the vine, he is the true vine. Now, what does that imply? It implies that there's false vines, that there are other kinds of vines. What does a vine hold forth? It holds forth the promise of life. There are all kinds of things in this life that hold forth the promise of life. Marriage holds forth the promise of life. Money holds forth the promise of life. Success holds forth the promise of life. Moving from this city to that city for some of us holds forth the promise of life. Moving back holds forth the promise of life for others. Living in this neighborhood or in that neighborhood, health, whatever it may be, there are all these vines in this world, in this dying world, in this suffering world, in this world that is passing away, this temporary world. In the context that Jesus spoke in in his day, the nation of Israel was referred to as the vine. And he's saying, look, it never brought forth the fruit the Father intended. It's not the vine. I am the true vine. If what you're looking for is life, Jesus is not ambiguous about where to find it. It's not hiding it from us. It's not like a shell game. Oh, I'm going to put it under here and scoot this around and see if it... He's like, hello. So he comes to us with the agricultural analogy. He says, I am the true vine. So that's who I am. I'm the vine. And then he says, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, is that a word you use much? I'm going to go with no. So what's that? It's the gardener. It's the farmer. Jesus is the vine. The father is the farmer. As we'll see in a second, you and I are the branches. What does the farmer who is the father do to the branches? Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch, that's us in me, that does not what? Because it is the goal. It's not one of the goals. It's not, you know, one of a whole list of, it's it's the goal. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, what does the farmer do to that branch? He takes it away. He cuts it off. Now, why does he do that? Because it's dead. It is a dead branch. Jesus is coming to us and he is saying, listen, here is what is true if you are actually a believer in me and you have my life within you. If you have my life within you, you will inevitably bear fruit and there are no exceptions. Now, you might bear cluster upon cluster upon cluster of grapes, or you might bear one puny little, you know, raisin-looking grape, but here's the deal. You will bear fruit if the life of the vine is in you. And every branch that does not bear fruit, Jesus says, well, my father who is the vine dresser, translation farmer, does what? He cuts it off. He takes it away. And every branch that does bear fruit, now look what he does. Every Christian who proves through the bearing of fruit that they have the life of the vine within them, what does the father who is the farmer do? Guys, he prunes us. And why does he prune us? Because Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. He prunes us, and here's why, so that it may bear more fruit. The goal is to maximize the production of fruit. And so, you know, as you begin to work through that, you think, okay, now if I'm a believer in Jesus, check. 
And I've proven that because I've borne at least a raisin, maybe two, check. God's goal for me is the production of fruit. What does that require? The maximum production of fruit requires pruning. God is not punishing you. God is not cursing you. God is not pouring out His wrath and His judgment upon you. God is pruning you and for a purpose that redeems the pruning. And that purpose is the production of fruit. Now, He hasn't told us what the fruit is yet, has He? But He has at least given us quite a commentary on its value if you're processing this. Think about how valuable this fruit must be because what he's saying to you and what he's saying to me is, hey, guess what, guys? This fruit that's going to be produced maximum as a result of this pruning is clearly, obviously, evidently far more valuable than your comfort. And it's far more valuable than your money. And it's far more valuable than your health, than your plans then your goals and dreams, and then your expectations for your life and how you thought your life would go or maybe wouldn't go. It's more valuable than your physical life. It's more valuable than the physical lives of those that you love. It's like He's coming along and He's collecting up everything that is precious to us in this life, most precious to us in this life. And he's not denying the value of any one of those things. What he's doing instead is he's saying, I want you to imagine by faith something even more valuable. And it's this fruit that we're talking about. So Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. My father, vine dresser, but we'll just call him the farmer. That's easier. Our goal, father and son... For every follower of Christ, maximum production of fruit, here's what that requires. It requires pruning. So let me tell you what you're thinking about this point in the message, okay? Here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, this is a pretty amazing opportunity. Isn't that what you're thinking? Wow, Tom, that's unbelievable. I had no idea that's the deal. Okay, so here's the deal. What you're saying is that if I endure more pruning, I'll produce more fruit. And then if I endure even more pruning, then I'll produce even more fruit. And then if I endure even more pruning, then I'll produce even more fruit. Where can I sign up for pruning? Is that it? It's not it. I'm ashamed to tell you I'm not saying that either. And here's why it's shameful. And it is shameful. Because what it says about me and about you is that we don't value... This fruit, quite the same way the Lord does. See, I think that's one of the reasons why God doesn't come to us and ask our permission before He prunes us. Hey, Tom, I was thinking about cutting this off. Do you think that's a good idea? No. Hey, Tom, how would you feel if I... I, I, You know what? Nope. Let's not even have that conversation. Hey, you know what? I am the sovereign Lord of all the universe. I know absolutely all things comprehensively. I see all things throughout the course of all eternity and all at the same time. I know unequivocally, and I'm the only one who knows unequivocally exactly what will happen if I clip this, if I cut this, if I shear this right off at the stock. And if I do this, you are going to bear massive amounts of fruit eternal fruit for which you will be rewarded forever and ever and forever be thankful. What do you think? 
Not going to lie, it doesn't sound exciting to me. Or does it? I want to remind you of a couple of things regarding pruning. I want to remind you that pruning only lasts for a season. Now, that season might be the rest of your life, and that's the problem, isn't it? However short or long that might be, it feels like, wow, that's a long time. One of the problems that we have, I think, in rightly evaluating our suffering and our pruning and this production of fruit and this whole idea is that we are these time-bound, finite, limited creatures who can't seem to think beyond tomorrow or next week or next month. Good grief, we can't imagine beyond our lifetime. And yet, what does the gospel call us to do? Our God calls us by faith to imagine forever and then to evaluate things in light of that. Pruning only lasts for a season, even if it lasts for the long length of your life, which is what? A vapor? A whisper? Blink of an eye? Honestly, as compared to eternity, it's not even those things. So it only lasts for a season. Secondly, I'd remind you that God's hand is never so close to you as when he prunes you. I mean, just work through the analogy a little bit. And I think that's important, too, because I think oftentimes we feel like, you know, Lord, where are you? And he's like all up in our leaves, you know. (laughs) What do you mean, you know? (laughs) Right here. Right here. Do you hear that? And since he's doing the pruning, don't you think he knows where it hurts? Don't think he's aware of that? I think he gets that exactly, precisely. I think he does. It's wonderful that he's called not only the gardener, but the great physician, isn't it? And it's wonderful that he's not just an invisible God who's, you know, out there somewhere. He's an imminent God who's right here all up in our leaves. And he's an invisible God who became visible in the person of Jesus Christ and who suffered in every way that we suffer and far more profoundly, and sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. This is not a dispassionate God that we come to worship today. So Jesus says, I'm the vine, you guys are the branches. My father, he's the farmer. Our goal, maximum production of fruit, prerequisite, pruning. And then he says this in verse 3, and he says it to his disciples who are freshly birthed, if you will. They're standing there with him on planet earth, listening to him give this teaching on the night in which he is betrayed. And he gives it to them knowing that they're about to have a pretty severe season of pruning and that they're going to watch him die and with him everything they've hoped for. Verse 3 says, already you guys, you who have been born again by the Holy Spirit and through the proclamation of my word and who are about to go through this season are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You're not dead branches. You're living branches. You've brought forth at least a couple of grapes, you know, more than a few raisins in their case, I think. So you are in the vine, but you're going to be real tempted to cut yourself off from the vine. That's the temptation in pruning, I think. 
It's to run from the one we are to abide in. It's to rebel against the one we are to submit to. Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken. And so now listen to what he says to them and to me and to you. He says, in the context of prunings on the way, abide in me, he says, and I in you. Why? Well, because as the branch cannot bear fruit, and that's the goal by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. And so then Jesus says again, I am the vine. And then he says, and you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. That's the person who bears much fruit to which he then adds, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You can bear no eternal fruit. You can build a business. You can, you know, there are things you can do. But in terms of the things that endure forever, that's what we're talking about. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. In fact, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are what? It's a very powerful metaphor. They're gathered and thrown into the fire and burned, just in case you were wondering what happens once you get in a fire. Very emphatic. But what happens to those who do abide in Jesus? And by the way, how do we abide in Jesus? Because that's kind of an open question at this point, and now he begins to answer it. He says, if you abide in me and my, and here's a key word, he says, and my words abide in you. I want to stop for a minute, and I want to tell you, you cannot actively abide in the vine who is Jesus Christ and ignore his word. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's why these personal worship plans that we're sending you via email and talking about and all of this, that stuff matters. It's storing up God's Word in your heart. It's through the Word of God that God speaks to you, both when you're reading it and at other times as His Spirit reaches down into the storehouse of the Word of God that you've stored up in the storehouse of your heart and you've made continual deposits into. And He grabs images and He grabs ideas and He grabs verses and it's amazing how He brings it to your mind in that moment. What is He doing in that moment? He's talking to you. And He's able to do it because He's pulling it up out of the storehouse. You've put it in. He brings it up. We talk about know the Word and live the Word. It's far more than academic. To have words of Christ abiding in you is to recognize them as the words of Christ, meaning your King, not somebody who occasionally gives you advice, but the one for whom and by whom and through whom you live, and it is to submit yourself to those words. Know the word, live the word. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, and then notice the next word that he uses, he says, ask. Now, what is that? It's prayer. And that too is at the heart of what we're talking about when it comes to abiding in Christ. You cannot divorce yourself from prayer on the one hand and really abide actively, meaningfully with Him on the other. He's given us these means of grace that we are not to ignore. 
He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask, and then you're going to love the rest of this, whatever you wish, and it might be done for you. Is that what it says? No, it says, and it will be done for you. And now let me tell you what you're thinking. This time you're actually thinking it. You're thinking, wow, that's finally something sounds cool. You know, that sounds great. Dear God, give me a Ferrari. Make it red. I mean, since it's, you know, I like red. That doesn't work. I've tried. Um, it doesn't work that way. Let's read it again. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. It's a conditional clause, isn't it? If that is true of you, you're abiding in Christ and his word is abiding in you. Now, listen to this. Well, okay, well then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And why is that the case? That's the case because it's the life of the vine who is Jesus Christ flows in and through you by the power of the Holy Spirit as you're abiding in His Word and His Word is abiding in you. You stop longing for Ferraris, not going to lie. And you start longing for the things that Jesus longs for for you. And it transforms what you ask for. Because all of a sudden, you start asking ever more and more and more for Jesus to give you what Jesus already desires to give you. Why? Because the desires of Christ are flowing into and through you, and your desires and His desires line up. And then just think about it from His perspective. It's pretty cool, because then He gets to give you what both you and He want you to have. John Calvin made a famous statement. It's beautiful. He says, love God and do whatever you please. Think about that. That doesn't mean love God and go out and, you know, live like the devil. It means love God and then do whatever you please. Now, why is that the case? Because if you love God, what you're going to please to do, what will please you is to do what pleases God. It's a beautiful thought. So then what does Jesus desire for you? It's going to sound familiar. Verse 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified. Are you ready? Here it is. That you bear much fruit. My goodness, we got a theme going here. And so prove through the bearing of that fruit to be my disciples. You don't become the disciples by bearing the fruit. But if you are a disciple, you bear fruit. It's organic. It just happens. And you don't have to manufacture it. You don't have to do it. I mean, I've never seen an orange tree sprout, you know, oranges through its branches, right? Like just the branch on its own. It just produces the fruit because it's connected to the tree. It happens organically. But Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. It's the fruit that brings the Father glory and so proved to be my disciples. And as a result of the fact that it's the fruit that brings the Father glory, the fruit is so incredibly valuable. It's precious precisely because it brings the Father glory. And how does it do that? As the people in your world see the invisible God at work in you. And they become curious. As they recognize that He is more valuable to you than your comfort, than your money, than your health, than your plans, goals, agendas, ambitions, expectations for how your life would or would not go, your own physical life. 
and that of those around you. There is a supreme value in this universe, and the supreme value of the universe is the glory of God. And the question that all of us need to reckon with and deal with, and every single day of our lives we need to reckon and deal with this, and in every area of our lives we need to reckon and deal with this, but this is when it's most difficult. Are you ready? During our seasons of pruning, we need to reckon and deal with this. And here's the question. Is the supreme value of the universe the supreme value of my universe? Is it really? Because it seems to me that if it's not, then here's what happens. Instead of abiding in the vine who is Jesus, we run from the vine who is Jesus. Instead of submitting to the good hand of the good gardener of our soul, we resent and rebel against the pruning of the vine dresser who is the Father. And that's not a little difference. So Jesus says in verse 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. That's the goal. And in doing so, by the way, you will also prove to be my disciples because, well, that's what disciples of mine do. As the Father has loved me, he continues, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So he's using the abide word again. So he's going to talk about what that means. Abide in my love, he says, but how do we abide in your love, Jesus? Well, what he's going to say next is in exactly the same way that I, Jesus, have abided in the love of my Father. And how is that? Through joyful obedience to his commands. Know the word, live the word. We're told in the New Testament that it was for the joy set before him that Christ went to the cross. Joyful obedience to his Father's command. Listen to what he says. He says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be where in your circumstances? No, in you, even in the midst of your circumstances and that your joy may be full. And then Jesus gathers up all of these commandments that we're supposed to, in love, obey. And he summarizes them with one commandment. And it's a commandment that Jesus himself has set the pattern for as well. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another, how? As I have loved you. I have joyfully obeyed my Father's commandments, joyfully obey mine. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends, Jesus says, if you do what I command you, for your very obedience testifies to your friendship with Christ, that it is authentic, that it is genuine. It's what happens naturally when it's real. No longer do I call you servants, says Jesus, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Why? I chose you and appointed you that you should what? Go. And do what? And bear fruit. Almost sounds like the Great Commission. Get to Matthew 28, what does he say? Go ye into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. It's very evangelistic. 
I think there's a real echo of that here. I think that's a lot of what he's talking about, that you may go, he's saying, go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, meaning your fruit shall not be something that dies with you, just like, frankly, everything else will be. It's an eternal fruit. Fascinating. Go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my name, he the Father may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So anyway, you know, as Beth and I would get up every morning, have our breakfast, throw on the walking shoes, huff and puff up the hills, I would pray, she would pray, I would pray, she would cry, I'd get dirty looks and people sticking their dogs on me. But at some point she said, you know, I I feel like God is pruning us. He's not punishing us. He's not cursing us. He's not judging us. He's not pouring out His wrath on us, but He is pruning us. And why does He do that? To maximize the production of fruit. And why is fruit valuable? Because it is as we produce the fruit of the vine who is Jesus Christ in our lives that we bring glory to the Father as the people in our lives see it and smell it and taste it and partake of it and come to the same Savior and to the same Father that we found. So then what's the fruit? I made a list, but it's non-exhaustive. There's so many things not on it. I think it's the fruit of a love for Jesus that transcends our love for our comfort, for our money, for our health, for our agendas, plans, dreams, ambitions, expectations for how our lives would and wouldn't go for our own physical bodies and those that we love. I think it's the fruit of a peace that says that my safety and my security, that my future and that my eternity lies not in the hands of the things of this world or of the people of this world, but it lies instead in the hands of the one who, as Isaiah says, sits enthroned above the circle of this world and upon whose hands our names are graven. I think it's the fruit of a joy that defies your circumstances and flies in the face of everything that everyone who's got any kind of sight into your world sees. just doesn't make any sense. It's the fruit of a faithfulness that remains faithful to God even when it looks like God has not been faithful to you and that calls God faithful even when it looks like God has not been faithful to you. It's the fruit of a heart that agrees with God's valuation of His glory and that indeed it is more precious than anything else. And it's the fruit of a faith that receives the pruning of God and all of the hurt and pain and loss associated with it. It doesn't deny any of that, but receives it as if from the hand of the sovereign Lord, the good gardener of our souls, and embraces the reality that somehow, some way, within the mysterious counsel of His infinite and eternal will, this is all good. For that's what He calls it. And it's good because it increases our ability to bear eternal fruit that brings Him eternal glory. See, the Scriptures call you to a different perspective to a different wisdom, 
to a different way of looking at and valuing all things. And it's only by faith, those kinds of eyes, those kinds of ears, those kinds of hearts are developed, fostered, until even in the midst of our pruning, like Job, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Amen.